Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Stefania Caponia, Booktopia's non-fiction category manager. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with acclaimed clinical psychologists and most recently, father-daughter co-author team of Drs. Rachel and Ross Menzies. Hello and welcome, Dr. Rachel, Dr. Ross. For the people listening, can you tell us a bit about your upcoming collaboration, Mortals, How the Fear of Death Shaped Human Society? So Mortals is a book that we started talking about writing a year or two ago. Um, And really it's an attempt to show all of the different ways that humans have responded to death for as long as our species has been here. So it draws together work from uh, philosophy, from science, from um, psychology, of course, from religion, from history, both ancient and modern, to try and paint for the reader a picture of the different ways humans have grappled with this fear across history and how it's really shaped human societies and human culture across that time. So, Ross, you, you've worked, you're working with your daughter. Can yeah. I call you Ross or do you prefer yeah, Dr. Ross? Ross? Ross is okay. <laughs> Okay, just checking. So, Dr. Ross, um, (laughs) did you always want to work with your daughter, Rachel, or was this something that just, where did this idea come from? (laughs) (laughs) No, no. Um, Look, it's it's fascinating working together. Uh, Obviously, I've known Rachel her entire life, and it's Rachel that actually led us into this death work. She was doing work with her own team at the University of Sydney. My work as a clinical psychologist, had been broadly in anxiety disorders and so was very relevant to the work that was going on in Rachel's laboratory group uh, on the death side. And it's a, it's a wonderful collaboration and we've written now many pieces together. But this is our first attempt to write a major work for the public because we saw an urgent need for the public to really understand how these existential fears, these underlying fears are really driving everyday decision making. Um, it's one thing for academics to know it and study it, but we think the public need to see what's really going on for them. So, Rachel, was um, were you always interested in mortality as a subject or was it something that developed over the years of your research and working in the field? I think it's something I've always had some interest in. Even since I was quite young, I was always fascinated with mummification in ancient Egypt and different burial funerary rituals in different cultures or different points in history. So I always had an interest in death and then really it was as I began to study psychology at university and started to see and talk to dad about the different ways that death anxiety seems quite relevant to health that brought me into doing the research I do specifically. Um, So your book opens with a chapter on becoming aware of death. So I was really fascinated by this. Um, You discuss how studies show that by the age of five, which is really young, um, children already have an understanding of what death is. Um, And how this understanding changes as we get older and mature. So maybe if Ross would like to. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting. It's very interesting, isn't it, that individuals think that they acquire uh, their their knowledge of death in one foul swoop. But as you could see in that opening chapter, it comes in stages. There are various things to learn about death that develop from about age three, four through to about 10. Uh, They have to learn that it's irreversible. 
They have to learn that it only happens to living things. And then they have to be able to apply that to the self, that I'm a living thing, it's going to happen to me, it's going to happen to all living things. It's this combination of ideas that evolves over that first decade uh, that's also associated with a rise in anxiety that's developing as they start to understand the permanence, the irreversibility, that it happens to the living and it's going to happen to them. So there's a crude, there's a crude understanding as a three, four or five year old and quite a developed understanding, obviously, by eight, nine, ten, where the child can even tell you, look, it's because a, a body part fails you. Um, you know, they start to really understand uh, uh, what's going on with death. And it's a shocking revelation. Mm. It's, it's a shocking revelation. So, Rachel, in your experience, have you found that there's a peak age where people actually start to understand about their mortality? Yeah, so the understanding seems to develop in stages across those years, about four to ten. But in terms of when people tend to experience, you know, uh, I guess heightened fears of death, often it's around middle age where people are starting to see some of those early signs of aging. They might be started. They might be reminded of. Um, you know, the kind of physical pains of getting older, that sort of thing. So typically the time when people experience more fears of death are around that middle age bracket. Um, okay, so maybe I'll go to, to Ross now. Um, so you discuss how the desire of immortality has contributed to some of humanity's most destructive projects, as well as some of its most glorious creations. So I really enjoyed reading about how it contributed to the arts. I've got an arts background. Um, and particularly, I was fascinated by the, um, the insights you gave into Michelangelo and his work on the Sistine Chapel. So can you take yeah. readers through a little bit about that? Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Michelangelo, of course, most famous as a sculptor. Uh, and, and sculptors are interesting people. They're working with the hardest objects. They're, there's clearly a desire for some permanence in the products they're producing. But even in his painting, Michelangelo insisted in painting in the fresco form, painting into wet clay uh, rather than painting flat onto a wall. And that gives longevity of the art. People think that was, uh, it must have simply been what was done at the time. But as we explain in that chapter, that's not the case at all. In fact, he had to press for many, many months against the wishes of advisors to the Pope and simply would not start the Sistine Chapel uh, ceiling uh, if he was asked to paint on a flat wall uh, because it simply doesn't last as long. Whereas the fresco form, the art becomes the wall as it dries. And it's a very difficult form of painting. Uh, you can't correct it when the, when the plaster dries. So, yeah, it's a fascinating example, and, and, and we look at many examples of people who are clearly sensitive to death and are trying to, to, to outlast themselves and last as long as they can. Shakespeare is another. And there are some obvious other big examples like the pyramids yeah. uh, were a desperate attempt uh, to still be relevant a long time uh, after life has ended. Michelangelo even painted himself into yes. the artworks. Indeed. And, and not, not as a lowly fellow on the, on the side, <laughs> but as an exalted one, risen uh, 
you know, uh, sitting sitting with the uh, uh, the apostles. So he had a grand vision of where this was to end up for him. So do you find that um, artists in general have that um, desire for immortality or is it an unconscious thing that drives them to their creativity? I mean, we talk a lot in the book about uh, death being an unconscious driver of behaviour. And these permanent products, when you produce a product that lives on beyond the self, by definition, you're uh, extending yourself beyond the self. Same with children. Um, you know, I've extended the self uh, by producing... Uh, producing <laughs> the ultimate <people>. creation. <laughs> uh, uh, co-authors. I even produce co-authors now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, uh, any permanent product has that extra existential benefit of... I was here, I was real, and I lived. Uh, like even the, the hands in the cement of mm. the, 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 what is it, the, at the Chinese um, theatre, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so, Rachel, on the other hand, fear, um, the fear of death has also resulted in some of humanity's most destructive projects um, and global events. Um, you discuss wars, um, extremism, and um, even pandemics. So what are some of the ways that fear of death has impacted negatively on the world? Can you take us through some, some examples? So in the book, we give a bit of an introduction to a social psychological theory called terror management theory, which talks about the different strategies humans have of managing that terror of death. And one of the big buffers or defense mechanisms we have as a species in the face of death is our culture. So by kind of bunkering down in our, our cultural values, our cultural worldviews, we have a sense that we're living on through something greater than ourselves. Because I, as an individual, I'm not going to last very long on Earth, but my culture presumably is going to outlast me. And so there have been hundreds of studies in terror management theory showing that when people are reminded of death, they become more nationalistic, they become more aggressive, more hostile towards people who have different cultural worldviews, so people of different religious backgrounds, different ethnicities. They do things that are going to try and help them extend the self. And so we know in the laboratory, people do these things, people become more materialistic, more consumeristic, and we see this in, in the real world as well. When people become hostile, for example, in the early stages of the pandemic, we saw a lot of um, aggression or hostility towards people of Asian background because this was described as being the, the China virus. That's a clear kind of real world example of what we see in the laboratory from terror management theory, that when we're faced with these constant reminders of death, the way the pandemic has done for us, people bunker down in their culture and aggress against people who they see as being different to them. And so, of course, along those same lines, things like war, genocide, aggressively trying to defend your own, own culture, your own nation, your own territory against anyone who is seen as threatening that in some way. So religions fighting against other religions, nations fighting against other nations, all of those sorts of behaviours seem to stem from this unconscious fear of death. Um, what about consumerism? You touch on consumerism as well in, in the book, which I found really fascinating as a, a being driven by this fear. Can you talk a little bit about other consumerism? Yeah, so 
one one way of I guess denying our own death or getting some sense of immortality is through self-esteem so if I can feel good about myself as a person if I can feel like a worthwhile person then that gives me a sense that I'm going to live on after I die I'm going to be remembered as a significant member of my culture and my society and of course purchasing products is one way that we gain self-esteem it's one way that we feel good about ourselves and so there have been numerous studies which show that when people are reminded of death they're far more interested in buying products particularly products that are associated with social status so you know designer handbags or a new car or renovating their their kitchen these things that make people feel good about themselves and of course this contributes also to things like climate change where we're engaging in this rampant consumerism which is clearly having a negative impact on the planet and contributing to things like climate change and there has been studies that um with covid consumerism of these luxury items has actually increased, which is fascinating, right? Yeah, it's like COVID. COVID is giving us this, uh, for people that work in this space, COVID is this real-world experiment going on. <laughs> in, in the laboratory, we give reminders of death to people, subtle reminders of death. We see what happens to their behaviour. And they, as, as Rachel has said, they get more aggressive, they want to consume, they have a greater desire to have children, all of these things that are destructive to the planet. Every single day, uh, I mean, in New South Wales, people are tuning in at 11 o'clock to yeah. hear how many people are dead, how many people have got the virus for that day. We're getting this real world death priming happening all the time. And so we would expect everything we see in the lab. We would expect increases in desire for luxury items, desire to have, uh, you know, just show that I'm living well and lived well uh, desire to reproduce, you know, that one of the ultimate cheats to death is I'm going to pass on my genetic material. I'm still here in the face of a child. Um, and, and, you know, all of these things are ultimately destructive. We've known about the overpopulation of the planet for a long time. Uh, we were warned about it by scientists back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, that this was becoming unsustainable. And onward we have marched. Yeah. Um, so another fascinating thing I found um, in your book um, is how in there's so many different societies that don't think of um, death as a taboo subject, but in our Western society, it is a taboo subject. It's not something that people really talk about <laughs> over a cup of coffee mm -hmm. or over a drink. Um, and there's not accessible information of what to expect when someone is passing away. I experienced that with, with my mum when she was passing away. We didn't have access to information of what to expect or what was going to happen. You know, very different to when someone's pregnant or going through labour. There's a lot of easily accessible information. But around the same time my mum was passing away, there, I was noticing that there was a lot of information online and coming up in magazines about this new movement called death cafes um, and death doulas. So it's like this new positive movement around death. Um, and you talk about it in your book, um, which I found um, lovely. <laughs> so if you could take people through what this is, um, and if you think it's a positive direction towards people 
facing their fears of death and maybe having a, you call it a good death. Mm. I think, I think you're absolutely right that we don't, there's this real stigma and taboo about death that ends up impacting people really negatively where people might not feel comfortable being able to talk about their end of life preferences, being able to talk about what they want to happen to them after they die. And it comes at a real detriment both to the person who is dying and to the people that they leave behind when these conversations can't be had because of social expectations about it. And you're right that as a society, we do tend to keep the dead or the dying hidden away. We don't care for our dead or care for our dying the way we used to for hundreds and hundreds of years. The death positive movement emerged about, I think, in the, sometime in the last decade. And really, it's an attempt to try and break down these taboos around death, to normalise death, to help people have these difficult conversations. And I think it's a fantastic thing because I think the more we can talk about death and normalise it, the better people can feel, you know, the more equipped people can feel to deal with this fear, to have these important conversations and to actually think about death before the time comes and before it's too late. So there's been a, a huge surge of, of books about death coming out. Um, you know, there's great kind of YouTube channels and things with people talking about death, which I think is a huge, you know, a huge progressive step for us after so long of, of feeling like this is a taboo subject that we can't talk about as a society. So what are death cafes and death doulas? Can you explain that? So death doulas are, it's the same principle, I guess, as being a, a birthing doula, but the principle instead is to help people with the end stage of life. So essentially it's people who work in, you know, to work with the dying, to help guide them through those final stages of their life. Death cafes emerged in Europe and have become more and more popular and more and more widespread across the world. And essentially a death cafe is when a group of people, often strangers, meet in a cafe, for instance, or some kind of place, and just talk about death in a really non-judgmental, agenda-free way. Um, so there are death cafes all around the world. There's one in Sydney that I went to for a few years, which was always a very memorable, enjoyable experience. And again, the, the overarching goal or, or message of them is to try and break down these taboos and help people have these conversations about death. Um, one of the most moving chapters for me in the book was about love and death. Um, and there's this image where you discuss Pompeii and the plaster casts of the corpse cavities that they discovered under the ashes 2,000 years after the eruption. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what this project was and what they discovered about the people um, in those, those plaster casts? Mm. So the plaster cast of Pompeii, I think, is such a beautiful, I agree, a very moving example of how people cope with death, even when they're right in the midst of it, even when they're just moments away from death that the researchers who have surveyed the plaster cast and been able to actually look at essentially, essentially what the bodies look like as people were in those final moments of dying, they revealed something really interesting, was that most people stayed with either their loved ones or even strangers as the volcano was erupting, as the ash and everything else was filling the streets, that people often didn't actually run for safety 
Instead, they even lingered back, knowing that it was it would mean they're you know they're they're not running for safety. They're less likely to escape, and yet they would stay back with people who were elderly, with children, with people who were going to slow down their escape from the from the ash, from the eruption. So it shows that even in those final moments of death, people cling on to their loved ones. They cling on to other humans, even humans they didn't know. So some of these bodies seem to have been strangers, but people have chosen to die with other people. And this shows us how our attachments to other humans, our close relationships with others, is one other protection that we have in the face of death, because it's a sense of connection, a sense of um, safety and security that we get from our connection with other humans. So does it impact our um, experience of death or does it contribute to our fear of death, that connection with people? It's a really good question. So from the, the laboratory studies we know of, from the research studies, it seems like having close relationships with people seem to protect us a little bit from the fear of death. So people who feel they have people they can depend on, people they can rely on, tend to have less fears of death. And we also know that when people are given these subtle reminders of death, they tend to seek out other people. So if someone's reminded of death, for example, when they're brought into a room where they're going to be sitting with a bunch of strangers, they actually sit in their chair closer to a stranger than they, than they would have if they weren't reminded of death. So we seem to seek out closeness even with strangers when we're reminded of death. The flip side, though, is that sometimes relationships can actually bring up more worries about death because on the one hand, if I have a lot of people around me who I love dearly, it brings up one other thing potentially for me to worry about. But now I have to worry about losing these people. What if I lose my loved one? How will I cope when I lose these people? So it's a bit of a, you know, a double-edged sword. On the one hand, relationships seem to protect us from that fear. But on the other hand, they don't always seem to be a solution because the more we care about others, the more we have to lose when they die. I think it's when we die <laughs> because once we're gone, we've lost that connection with the people who are left behind. Mm. Yeah. Just, oh, Stefania, if I can follow up just on something Rachel mm. said there, um, I think one of the challenges in COVID particularly has also yeah. been, following up from that Pompeii example, we've been robbed of that now. Yes. Uh, people are on their own and they're dying on their own. We're separated from them in funerals. Oh, yeah. We've lost our rituals and our rights. We've, we've lost the way in which we normally bury the dead. Uh, and how we normally accompany the dying to yes. their death. And that's one of the very traumatic parts. All of the research is suggesting this is a very traumatic part of, of uh, yeah. what we're I, I just keep thinking, like, I know when my mum passed and we were all in the room with her, yeah. Yeah. I just cannot fathom not being able to do that. Yeah. So for people who I know at the moment who are losing parents or loved ones and they can't even visit, I just cannot imagine what that must be like mm. um, for both the person dying on their own and the person who can't be there to say goodbye. Mm. Yes, it is. It's as much as we talk about the numbers when we look at those news um, programs. It's taking away the that personal connection. Right? It's taking away all of the natural ways yes. that that our culture has 
built up to deal with the passing of someone. That's been stripped away from us and all cultures around the globe as we try to handle this situation. Mm. Um, so one of the um, other beautiful stories in, in the book, you um, speak about James William Ovens, who um, you've dedicated the book to. So um, there's a lovely anecdote about him. So can you tell us a little bit about Jim? I think um, Ross, yeah, was, in the, this anecdote. He was a wonderful, wonderful man and he had a tremendous uh, effect on everyone who knew him. But he, he was a man that had a brain tumor. He was a dear friend of mine and he knew he'd be dying. Uh, and this is one of the, the greatest of challenges, knowing that I have 18 months to live. Uh, but the grace with which this man passed uh, is, the, is the thing that, that, that challenges all uh, uh, watching this. And I tell an anecdote in, in a chapter in the book about having dinner with him, the last time I would have dinner with him, in which you would definitely have, have said, if you were looking at the two men at our table and, and thought one of them was dying, you would have thought it was me. Because I looked saddened and in quite a state, and he looked uh, quite jolly and jovial and uh, his normal sense. He had wonderful stoic acceptance. And we talk about this really important idea of neutral acceptance. I accept death because it's a part of life and it's beyond my control. And because it's beyond my control, I'm not worried, worried about that. Uh, I get on with the things I can control. He was concerned only about the things he could alter. You know, could he visit this person or not? Could he still fly in a plane or were his doctors not letting him? And it was uh, a tremendous privilege uh, to watch his uh, uh, ailing and learn from it. Uh, I think in our dedication, we say, who, Jim, who showed us the art of dying. Um, and I was very fortunate to speak at his funeral and pass on the same thoughts to his family. He was a, a very impressive man in one of the hardest uh, points of a person's life, the foreshadowed death, knowing that death is coming. So do you find that people um, knowing that they're going to pass away and they've got that time period, do you find that the, the anxiety heightens or like with your friend Jim, they relax into it because they know that there's... Um, a, it's, a, yeah, that it's, it's terribly coming. variable. It's terribly variable depending upon attitudes to death that the person had coming into the dying process. Uh, so those that have been in denial of death uh, in one form of denial or another are often shocked and angered and saddened. Uh, so it, it, it depends on the attitude you took into that process. As I've said, there's a type of acceptance that we call neutral acceptance. I accept death because it's a part of life. It's a natural, it's the natural order of things. People high on neutral acceptance do very well in the passing uh, process. There are other types of acceptance. There's approach acceptance. Um, I'm gonna to move toward a better place. If you're very high on approach acceptance, you believe you're going to a better place, uh, uh, then you may also pass well. Uh, so it's not that one must be neutral, uh, but, but uh, neutral acceptance actually has the best outcomes for a gentle, easy passing. So maybe this um, positive death movement would help people achieve that. Yeah, absolutely. We have to stop hiding away from death in, in our culture. We, I think part of the problem is that Western medicine made death the enemy. 
Mm. And, and we've decided that we have to extend life yes. wherever we can, by every minute that we can. And, and we don't care if the person is addled in brain as we do it. We'll do anything to extend life. We talk in the book about futile mm. treatments where medical practitioners will admit, look, I, I ran treatments on this person that could not do anything for them, but I did it because the family were wishing any extension that I could give them. Um, we're so, we've so set death up as an enemy uh, that, that we're in a difficult situation. We're not really thinking adaptively about death. And that's obviously one of the goals of, of this book. Yeah, so on that, what, what do you want people to take away from, from this book? Rachel, maybe you can answer this. What, what's the end goal of people reading it? I suppose the end goal would hopefully be people having a greater understanding of the way that their thoughts of death or their worries about death might be impacting some of their decisions, some of their behaviours, and the toll it can take on us both individually and also as a society if we don't come to terms with death in some form. And I think this is the really big goal here, that if I can build up an acceptance of death, an awareness of death, it can actually help me live a much more meaningful and enjoyable life than if I, you know, deny death or push thoughts of death away or avoid having those conversations. That would be the, the goal, I think, of, of this book. So, Ross, would you work with Rachel again? Is this the, the first of many collaborations? <laughs> and, and what sort of collaboration would you look at having? In the future, Rachel is a is a, a very easy collaborator. She has uh, a, a tremendous one, tremendous strength as a younger academic. You never embarrass the older academic, and if things are falling through the cracked cracks, you just make sure you tidy them up. No, it's 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 wonderful. It's look, it's we're very. I'm very fortunate to to. I've worked with lots of uh, wonderful people across my career in academia, but. Um, it's obviously very special to be working with your daughter. Do you both work at the same university? You work different campuses? So this is the first time it's brought you together like this. We have worked before on projects, but, but never as big a project as this. And, and I think we'd both say in many ways, this is the most important piece of writing we've been involved in because this, we hope, could have a real impact on people, a, a deepening understanding of why they're doing things and, uh, why they feel the way they feel about other groups, groups that aren't like them, uh, why they feel angered or hate, why they support conflicts of various sorts. We hope it, you know, it can have a really broad impact. We're at two different universities. Uh, Rachel's at Sydney and I'm at UTS. Not too far from each other. Not too far from each other. <laughs> and always so you, you can have lunch. You can have lunch <laughs> together. Okay. I absolutely loved reading the book. Um, parts of it were quite. Um, obviously quite moving and upsetting. It's lots of fascinating topics and I'm sure people will get a lot out of this book. So um, thank you both so much for joining us today. Um, it's been fascinating. Um, and for everybody listening, you can grab your copy of Mortals at your local bookstores or online at Booktopia. Thank you for listening and never stop reading.
Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.